Job 19, 25 through 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Hear the word of the Lord. Memorial Day used to be called Decoration Day. That was its original name. It got its start around 1868, after the Civil War, when some 620,000 people died in America. So it emerges after the Civil War to honor the Union dead. Decoration Day. I used to hear it more often than I hear it now. Uh, there's a family gone from us this morning uh, out of a promise to the patriarch's mother that uh, he would attend to uh, their graves. And so they went off to uh, another state to care for those matters this weekend. Maybe on this Memorial Day weekend, you've been up in the cemetery and you have uh, visited the grave of a loved one. You, you might even come in with a heavy heart this morning. Uh, just a uh, uh, fresh little page of grief on your heart, sense of loss uh, re-engendered as you've done this. I, I grew up, one of my part-time jobs was uh, mowing cemeteries. And my uncle was the overseer. And he had very high standards as we got closer and closer to Memorial Day. He wanted it to look like the Augusta National Golf Club uh, on Memorial Day weekend because he knew a lot of people would be up and would be in the cemetery. And so we worked very hard at the end of that week. You didn't want to mow too early. You wanted to have it be just right at peak uh, as Saturday and Sunday and Monday came for the weekend because a lot of people would be up there. COVID has rubbed our faces in death. Now, I've already talked to you about um, my sense of the numbers with COVID, uh, but people have died from COVID. A lot of people have died from COVID. Our happy brother, Dave Hammers, is now in heaven. Before COVID, Dave was ensconced at Fairhaven Mission, leading, investing his life. That happy soul was telling other people about Jesus. And to think of David reminds us of our obligation to uh, follow him in that pursuit of telling others about Jesus. He also uh, incessantly, of course, as we think of his life and honor his memory this morning on Memorial Day weekend, he was always asking others, how can I pray for you? And that's really a lovely question. It's, it's good friends pray for each other. Do they not? Dave was with us before COVID. COVID came. He went down hard and died from COVID. There have been many deaths and seemingly indiscriminate. Yes, older people, weak in constitution, have died. But younger people, surprisingly, have been taken down by COVID. It's made all of us ponder, even if just for a moment... How will it be when we face death? One question that has surfaced in the middle of COVID is, 
Why can we face death with courage and hope? It's a question that COVID has brought. I want to use the Bible this morning and seek to answer that question. Now, dissimilar to what we usually do, which is park on a passage, drill down into it, and walk through it, which we shall do. There's only one more COVID question that we're going to look at. And then we'll head off to uh, follow Esau. Uh, Esau's a postmodern man. And we need to learn from Esau how to live. And we're going to be following his life in the book of Genesis, uh, verse after verse. But this morning, we're going to be hopping around in the Bible. And if you say, Eric, I don't like how you do that. Well, only has one more Sunday after this. And uh, so if you can stand it for a couple more Sundays, you'll be fine. So I want to do what I've always done in this series. Number one, I want to pour the footings. This morning, there's four sections Pour the footings to build a superstructure on top of to answer the question. First, lay the foundation. Second, answer the question. Third, how shall we then live? This is not to satisfy our curiosity. It is to affect how you live and how I live as followers of Jesus in our day facing what we do in this old broken world. So let's use our Bible and answer the question. Isn't it a great weekend on Memorial Day weekend where some of us have been up in the cemetery to answer the question, why can we face death with courage and hope? First, let's lay the foundation. Let's pour four footings. Footing number one, we've already been to, so we don't have to stay long here. Life in a broken world is impermanent. Life in a broken world is impermanent. Remember, this was our first question in COVID, was it not? Are we really this vulnerable? Answer, yes, we are. We're really this vulnerable. One of the glories of Christianity is it gives an explanation to life in our broken world. It helps us understand ourselves. It helps us understand God. It helps us understand our experience. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death, through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Hear the word of the Lord. Eric, why is there death in this world? God created us. God gave us life. Sin entered and the curse came. And the inexorable result of sin's entrance and our participation, not just some of us, but all of us, is that death ensues. We shall all succumb. Eric, why? Christianity has an explanation. It wasn't like this in the beginning. We brought this on ourselves in our rebellion against God. We sinned, the curse came, and death entered. The wages of sin is death. There's an explanation for it. Hebrews 13, 14, at the end of this extraordinary letter that the author to the book of Hebrews writes to these beleaguered people who are getting crushed by the pressure of their culture standing against their faith, he writes to them and says in Hebrews 13, 14, here we have no permanent city, but we look forward to the city that is to come. There's no permanent city here. We know this. And it makes us live differently. Notwithstanding the fact that we know this, at times... We don't live like it is true. You would get the sneaking suspicion that we thought we were going to live forever. 
That's not true. We are all finite. We are all mortal. Everyone dies. Moses says in Psalm 90, verse 12, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Second pouring. And the first pouring goes with the second pouring of this footer. Death is not the end of our existence. According to the Bible, death is not the end of our existence. Come back with me to Job 19. Job, an early contemporary of Abraham, one of the biblical patriarchs, he affirms in Job 19, 25 through 27, what I read at the top of the message. He affirms that there is life evermore for the believer and he will stand though his flesh has, indelicately said, rotted. He will stand fully constituted in a body, what Paul would later say, likened to his glorious body in his hour. Believers in Jesus' mortality will be swallowed up in immortality and we shall live seeing our Lord and be with him forever. At Vod Yashem, I'm sure some of you have been there in Jerusalem, the Holocaust Museum, and it's, it's quite a place. But there's one exhibit that really struck me, and it's an exhibit that has a quote from Anne Frank, of course, a young lady killed in the death camps, a young Jewish girl. And she wrote rather cryptically, I know I am going to die, but I want to live again. And there's not any one of us here this morning that doesn't understand the sentiment that she put down on a piece of paper before she was killed in the death camp. A yearning to live again. That's why Jesus' bold declaration at Lazarus' tomb sticks out so in an age of impermanence where everyone dies. What did Jesus say when he sat with Mary and Martha at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus? Why, he said this, John eleven twenty five. Many of you have memorized it. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asked Mary and Martha, and I ask you this morning. Jesus argued that in laying hold of him, we are laying hold of life. In believing in him and entrusting him, we lay hold of eternal life. God himself embodied in human form in Jesus Christ. And Jesus offers eternal life to everyone who would believe in him. Note the stress that Jesus offers at Lazarus' tomb is about sustained existence. Death doesn't interrupt that. That was Jesus' point right at the tomb of Lazarus. You say, well, Eric, did he add any postscript there? Yeah, he did. He said, uh, let's take the tomb, the stone off, and uh, Lazarus walks out, adding a powerful postscript to his declaration that I am the resurrection and the life. 
Jesus, put up or shut up. Take the rock off. Lazarus, come forth. And when Lazarus walked out, everyone understood the words that he had just articulated in a way that before they had not understood. And this actually, unknown to them, was a dress rehearsal for his own resurrection that would take place. Now, notice, uh, it, it's fascinating turns of phrases. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Life, existence, after death. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Wait a minute. Jesus said never die. Listen, people who believed in Jesus have been dying since for the last 2,000 years. What on earth does that mean? He is arguing that death is merely and solely for the believer in Jesus a transition to an existence that is sustained after death. But we've talked before about in our humanity, after we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we simultaneously host three consciousnesses. First, we are conscious of ourself. As long as we have our mind about us, we are self-conscious and conscious of our own existence. And after we receive Christ into our lives, remember in the upper room, he told his followers, I'm going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit, and he will come and he will abide with you forever. So when we receive Christ into our life, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the resident presence of Christ. We are never alone. You are not alone this morning if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. So simultaneously, we're not only self-conscious, but we're conscious of God through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Then the third consciousness that we have is world consciousness. We are conscious that we live in the world, and we are conscious of the world through our body. We animate life through a body, and through our senses, we recognize the world that is here through what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we handle, what we feel. You are conscious of the world of the pew that you are sitting in, which the longer I preach, you are more conscious of how hard it gets. But you, you, you know you're in the world because you can feel that chair you're on. And so at any time, we have these three self-consciousness, self God-consciousness, and world-consciousness. When we die, and it's why Jesus could say, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, when we die, we do not lose self-consciousness. Now, I realize when people get in the throes of death, they lose their wits about them, and how we've chosen to have people die in Western culture now is... Uh, you know, and I appreciate the work of hospice, throttle people with pain medication and make sure that they don't feel anything and they stop breathing and go into eternity. That's, that's in a lot of cases, how it happens. But uh, we, we don't lose self-consciousness as long as we have our wits about us. We don't lose God-consciousness. God doesn't leave us or forsake us. But we do lose, at death, world-consciousness conscious of our surroundings in the world and what is here as we go to be with the Lord. So in that sense, we never die. We don't lose our consciousness of self or consciousness of God. We simply go to be with him. Now think of what Jesus said in John 14, 3. And if I go away and prepare a dwelling place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. What an extraordinary promise. 
the promise that Jesus himself will receive us to himself when he comes. It's unbelievable. Revelation chapter 20 is interesting in describing the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20, I'm going to read to you verses 11 through 15. God is holy. God is just. God is our creator. What God does is right. His judgment is not fickle, but holy and good altogether. And for humanity that he created to relate to him that has walked away and gone our own way and rebelled against his way of life or has not what Paul said, Romans 1.5, obeyed the gospel but has disobeyed the gospel and the call to come to Christ, they will be called to an account in judgment. And a just God will judge them. But please note, Resurrection is for everybody. Those who know Jesus as Savior will be raised to be with him. Those who have wanted nothing to do with God will be raised to be separated from God and be given the very thing that we were on a quest on to have all of our life, and that is, I want nothing to do with God. That kind of existence is what the Bible calls hell. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Revelation 20, 11. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged each of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Hear the word of the Lord. Now God does not desire for any man to perish, but for all men to come to repentance. That's what Peter said. And if you're here this morning and you are apart from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, has God brought you here on Memorial Day weekend. What a memorial weekend it would be if in 2021 it was the very weekend God chose to open your heart to believe in Jesus and to come to be a part of his family. Whosoever will may come. God has made a way for you to be forgiven, for me to be forgiven. There's this barrier that we've created with our sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. But God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And on Good Friday, God resolved that in Jesus Christ. And then on that first Easter morning, he was raised from the dead, proving that he was who he said he was, and he could deliver on eternal life. And we could live with this life and live with this hope. Have you received Christ as your Savior? Would you like this morning to spend some time with someone as our service closes before you go home to hear more about what it means to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. I urge you, be reconciled to God. It's not rocket science. John 6, 47, Jesus said, whoever believes has eternal life. It's all about relying. It's one of our four R's. We rely on Jesus. We're not relying. We're not depending. We're not trusting in our own self-righteousness to be found acceptable. God, here's my resume. Boy, I'm, 
I was really a good dude in life. But we hand God the only thing that we have, and that's our sin. And he gives us what we could not have apart from his grace, salvation in Jesus Christ, forgiveness through his death. So come to rely on Jesus this morning. I urge you to be reconciled to him. Now, the third pouring is this. A believer's death is released from the curse and our transition to the presence of God. There's an oft-repeated phrase in the book of Genesis about death. And the Hebrews, the Jewish people, began to look at death as something not gross worth, worst thing that could happen, but as actually release from the awful curse that was brought by sin. There's one phrase, in, it's in several places, Genesis 25, 8. It is said of Abraham and his death, it is described like this, listen for the phrase, gathered to the fathers. Abraham breathed his last, Genesis 25, 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. It was a metaphor that actually uh, had a literal meaning, but also spoke of uh, the end, not as some terminal point, but as release from the curse. Let me talk about its literal meaning. Uh, families that had enough means would hewn out a tomb from the rock. Uh, you remember Joseph of Arimathea gave up his tomb for the uh, mortal remains of Jesus, but it was just a, uh, just needed him for a couple days, huh? And uh, then the tomb was empty. But um, uh, they would have a family tomb, and, and so when a loved one would die, they would take him to the tomb, seal it up, they would wrap the body, and uh, put spices in there that was to mitigate the smell of, this is a little indelicate, rotting flesh over time, and so they wrapped them up. Well, over time, uh, their flesh would rot off, and all that was left was the bones. And so they had a box there. It was called an ossuary box, and uh, it was the bones of the forefathers who died previously. They just gathered them up and threw them in the box. You know, there's a great-great-granddad and great-great-granddad and great-granddad and granddad, and now... Dad's flesh is rotted, and so we'll take the bones. And they gathered the bones, and they put them in the ossuary box. And this was called gathering to their fathers. They put them there together, awaiting the day of resurrection. Um, it also meant for the Hebrews that this gathering represented not something tragic and awful, worst-case scenario, but our fathers, our mothers, they've finally been released from the curse. What they beat up against all their life at every turn, sin entered, death came, the curse came, uh, all those things that they faced, they're now released from all of that. It was viewed not as something negative, but something positive. They don't have to face it anymore. I'm convinced Murphy came up with his laws studying the curse of God on sin. 
<laughs> because isn't it true that all the annoying, frustrating things that seem to stand between us and what we're trying to accomplish and what we have to push back against in the curse and this old broken world, we, we all cry out inside, I wish it wasn't like this. I wish we didn't have to face this. And what we're really yearning for when we say that is what John describes in the book of Revelation when it's all over, when he said, um, Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I don't know about you, but I think there are a number of people who are yearning for the former things to pass away. Mourning, crying, disease, struggle. We're headed to a fair land that that's not going to be a part of. You say, Eric, what was all that healing stuff? What was all that about when Jesus was here? What that was about was, let me give you some idea of what it's going to be like when it's all over. And what it's going to be like is none of this is going to be involved. It's all going to be gone. And so this idea of the release from the curse made death look different. Now, let me say, we don't view death like that. And yet, it's the biblical lens through which to look at death. It's release from the curse. Therefore, it's not the gross worst thing ever to be experienced. It's like, hey, what is before us is my release from everything tragic in this old broken world. And there are a lot of tragic things. And some of you are facing tragedies right now. The fourth four is the final one. When a believer in Jesus dies, we go right into the presence of God. This is 2 Corinthians 5.8. This is Paul saying, you know, I'm torn betwixt and between, but I know to be absent from my body is to be present with the Lord. If you've ever been with a follower of Jesus Christ at the moment they died, there's something simultaneously tragic and sad, but glorious and wonderful to realize they have just taken their last breath and they have now taken as it were their first breath in glory they are with the lord to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord then remember jesus talking to the thief on the cross what did he tell him he, he said hey remember me when you come in your kingdom what did jesus say today luke 23 43 today you will be with me in paradise it's quite extraordinary. There's no purgatory. There's no soul sleep. By the way, the biblical metaphor of death as sleep, the vocabulary, sleep, it's actually something that's really sweet, and it informs our understanding of death because when you go to sleep, I don't realize there are exceptions, but in most every situation, what happens when you go to sleep? You wake up. You anticipate waking up. It's not the end. It's not the terminal point. Boom, that's it. You've come to the end of the line. No, it's a picture of sleep from which you wake up. Andy and I love Alistair Begg and the ministry at Parkside Church in Cleveland. If we get around in the neighborhood and we're off on a Sunday, we, we'll motor over there. And one Sunday we went to a service and Alistair had just flown back the previous day from London and he mentioned that his dad was very sick and wasn't doing well, and he'd taken a quick trip over there to be with his dad, and he'd come back. And he mentioned that in the message. And through the indulgence of others who have set me up through the years, 
I'd gotten to know Alistair a little bit. We were having lunch, and I, it was after that, and that was the last word I had on his dad, and I said, hey, Alistair, I said, how's your dad doing? Oh, he said, Eddie, he's better than he's ever been. And I go, oh, that's great. Alistair, what happened? He said, he died. And, and it was jarring to me. And I thought, oh, my, what? He died. But for the believer in Jesus, cannot it be said with those words, with full-throated, robust meaning? That is when we'll be better than we've ever been. I remember, and I don't know why we did this. Years ago, I was serving at a church, and we interviewed a child. I remember him as about 10 years old. And he came in, but we interviewed him as a whole deacon body and all the pastoral staff. And, you know, so he and his dad walk in there. He walked in and sat down. And finally, one deacon said, hey, won't you tell us what you have to do to go to heaven? He said, you have to die. <laughs> and uh, we all realized how clearly he understood the gospel. Where for him, the only thing that stood in the way of he and heaven and the existence with our Lord was death. And so, what do you got to do to go to heaven? He said, well, you have to die. <laughs> and it broke up a, a kind of a stodgy old uh, meeting with this boy, and it turned out very well. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says this about death. The time of my, how do you like this word? Departure is at hand. Departure. Death for him was just a passage from one place to another. And it was to a very good place. And he looked forward to it. The time of my, here it is, departure is at hand. Now that word was used in secular use in two different ways. And it makes its meaning all the more vivid. Departure. It was used of a boat in the harbor when the captain would say, All right, let's weigh the anchor. So they'd start taking the anchor up. And they'd take the anchor up because they were headed out because it was time to pull up the anchor and depart. It was used of an army that set up a temporary camp, and the captain would come out and say, all right, let's fold the camp, pack up, we're leaving. We're headed to where we are to be next and our objective. And so they would fold up the temporary home that they had. Dear ones in Christ, that's what we'll do. We'll fold the tent, and we will... Depart to be with the Lord. Peter uses a word that in English, in 2 Peter 1.15, the same English word shows up, departure. Peter said, you know, I want to get this all straightened out before my departure. And he's speaking of his death, but it's a different word in the original. It's a cool word. It's a word from which we get our English word exodus. In fact, if you take the Greek letters and you just give them English equivalent, it would spell out exodus. And so Peter's saying, you know, the time of my exodus is here. Now, by the way, the story of the Exodus is a great story because it was a story about leaving slavery and leaving bondage and headed for the promised land. That was what the Exodus meant. So Peter, writing to a group of beleaguered Jewish Christians, said, hey, we're getting ready for another Exodus. And we're going to leave. And we're going to head to that fair land. And that's how he views uh, death. It's, it, it's beautiful. By the way, many in the Christian church don't view death in this way. And it affects how they grieve. 
here's what is said of the martyrs in Revelation uh, 12, 11. They loved not their lives unto death. I fear we love our lives so much and have wrapped our axle around everything here so deeply that grief is so tragically debilitating. And, and grief is terrible. I never faced great sadness until my dad died and I didn't grieve well. I was ill-prepared for it even though I watched him go down and knew it was going to happen. And it presented as insomnia and was just a mess for a while. Grief is hard and if you're grieving... Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. He's the God of all comfort and the Father of mercy. Grief is real and substantial. I'm not minimizing it, but we sorrow not as those who have no hope. Ours is good grief in, in that sense. Now, what's the answer to our question then? If we've laid the footings, what's the answer? Why can we face death with courage and hope? Because Jesus Christ's tomb is empty. First and foremost, we are followers of Jesus, and we are following one who faced death, resolved it for us, and was raised from the dead. Matthew 28, 6, he's not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Colossians 1, 18, I memorized this passage with a group uh, in Scripture Memory Boot Camp this spring. Here's what is said of Jesus. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him all things might be preeminent. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, the firstborn anticipates others born. And we will be, if we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, raised from the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Christ is the firstfruits. Then, at His coming, those who belong to Christ. It's coming. Death is not the end. There's even a sarcastic, mocking tone in that passage that Sophie read. Oh, death, where is your victory? It's taunting death because it's not the end. My junior year in high school, I was on a basketball team that was 17 and 2. We won two and lost 17. It was a tough year. Two things were always said at the end of the game. The teams, and I was from a rural school in the county, Go back, go back, go back to the woods. Your coach is a farmer, and your team is no good. And they were actually only half right. Our coach wasn't a farmer. He taught at the high school, and, you know, he, he was there. But on the other front, it, it, indeed, true. The other thing that they would do was toward the end of the game, they would taunt us with that old pop rock song, na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, hey, goodbye. We just smashed your mouth. You guys are terrible. You're down 30. You're not going to win. Get your stuff out of our locker room. Get on the bus and go home. That's what it meant. And they would taunt us with that song, just mocking the fact that they'd destroy us. You know what? Paul gets to 1 Corinthians 15, 55. And he has the audacity to taunt death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Because he knew death was vanquished in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said that Christ has taken the stinger out of death. I hate it when a wasp lights on me or a hornet or a bee. But if all the stingers are gone, it's no big deal. They're there and it's gone. Is there any example in the Bible of anybody facing death with courage and hope? Let me read six verses of 
Acts chapter uh, 7, verses 54 through 60. I'll read it to you. It's of Stephen. You talk about a guy who faced death with courage, hope, and heart. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Hear the word of the Lord. Is it possible to die with courage, hope, and heart? By the way, as Stephen is going down, I mean, these guys are pummeling him with rocks that would take his life. He's on his knees getting struck further. And what is he saying? Lord, let me offer up the best imprecatory prayer I've ever offered. I want you to take these guys out right now. I want the ground, just redo Korah right here and swallow up all these rock throwers right now. No, you know what he says? God, don't hold what they're doing against them. Wow. And he was so fixated on Jesus that it reshaped that experience. Did it not? Now, how should we then live? Three things quickly. Number one, we live and face death with hope and the expectation of unending life. John 6, 47, he who believes has eternal life. I've learned so much from the people of God being next to them, watching their lives of faith. I've told you before about my friend Carl, a pastor of the church that I pastored previously. He got a bad diagnosis, and the disease took flight in his body, and I began to visit him. And I said, Carl, what's on your mind? I mean, what do you think of this whole thing? Not with any sense of machismo or bravado or I'm a big guy. Not with any pharisaical, let me say something real spiritual. He said, Eric, you know what? He said, all my life I've told people about the hope in Jesus. And he said, I'm excited. He said, I'm about to realize it. It's right before me. It's right here. Full assurance of hope. I'm about to see this one who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what death does? It puts its it puts its arm around us and it says, look, all that stuff you sang through the years at church, did you believe that stuff? When you would bear testimony of your trust in Jesus, your reliance upon Jesus? I mean, was that real? Death calls our bluff. Are we play acting or are we standing on the eternal rock of Jesus Christ, our Lord? Secondly, we live and face death with comfort, knowing that death is not the end nor the end of relating to our loved ones who know the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 talks about the coming of the Lord when we are gathered together. Here's the two operative words, with them. Who's the them? That's the believing dead. We will be with them. Death doesn't take us away from relating to those who know the Lord. We'll be with them. We'll see them. Eric, can you even know for sure if in your death, you were going to go be with the Lord. Can anybody know for sure? If we were here to interview John the Apostle, John, is it possible to know for certain and have the full assurance of hope that when we die, we'll go to be with the Lord? John, what's the answer to that? These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 13. 
That's not something we have to guess with. You know, have I been good enough? Have I done? No. Christ is a sufficient Savior whose offering was accepted by God. Now, followers of Jesus face life differently. We have a different perspective. And we grieve differently. It's real grief. We sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. Finally, we live and face death with courage through untethering all of our emotional fortunes from this life only. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if we have hope in this life only, T-L-O, this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. It used to be a slitch beer commercial on TV. You only go around once in life, grab all the gusto you can get. By the way, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it says life is hard. There are a few joys in life. One of them is to fear God, enjoy your friends and family, obey him, and drink deeply from each day. And we ought to drink deeply from each day. But it's not like the Epicureans were right, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's have a party because we better, because this is all there is. This is not all there is. And Paul said, if, that's, if this is all there is, our hope would be miserable. But many of us are so tethered to this that we grieve as if this was it. And biblical hope urges us to conclude this isn't it. There's more. You see, grief is unbearable and hard for those for whom this is all there is. David Brainerd, the colonial missionary to the Indians in New Jersey, that Jonathan Edwards published his biography after his death and made him famous. He would write about his tendency to be captured by this life only and say, oh Lord, help me not. And here's his turn of phrase, lick the earth. And he uses a bit of an indelicate phrase when he says, Lord, deliver me from sucking from the breast of the below world and trying to eke out an existence. We have an eternal home here we have no permanent city. We're headed for immortality. There's a big dose in God's family, especially in America, notwithstanding church attendance and good song singing of, boy, this is all there is. And so we are debilitated by grief. But we are people of the resurrection. And God is calling us to live like it. COVID has reminded us that people die. The empty tomb reminds us that we can have eternal hope. Let's live like it is true because it is true. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, you know every heart here and you know how this message comes to them. To the grieving, offer comfort in Jesus. To the lost without hope, open their heart to believe in Jesus. To the hurting and burdened, remind them that someday we'll be released from the curse. To the threatened and fearful, remind them that you are near, that you love them, and that the tomb is empty. Minister hope, Lord. There's something that sticks out about a person who lives with hope. 
And of all people on this globe who have an excuse for hope, it is followers of Jesus Christ. The firstborn from the dead. Listen to our prayers as we respond to you. Thank you that on this Memorial Day, though we all feel temporary, in Christ we've laid hold of something that's eternal, certain, and sure. And there is a thing in the New Testament called the full assurance of hope. Bring us to such a place. Reinvigorate us, I pray, Lord Jesus, this morning and today. Thank you.